Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to the New Books Network Media and Communications Channel. I'm your host, Monica Wilkie. Today we're going to be talking to Eileen Lahan about her new book, Microblogging Memories, Weibo and Collective Remembering in Contemporary China. Eileen, thank you for joining us. Hello and welcome back to the New Books Network Media and Communications Channel. I'm your host, Monica Wilkie. Today we're going to be talking to Eileen Lahan about her new book, Microblogging Memories, Weibo and Collective Remembering in Contemporary China. Eileen, thank you for joining us. Hi. Um, hello, everyone. Um, it's glad to be uh, in this program. Fantastic. So before we get into the meat of the book... Can you just give us a brief bio about yourself? Okay, so um, I grew up in China, um, and I spent a few years studying Hong Kong and before I moved to the United States, and I got my PhD at uh, University of Pennsylvania uh, in the school of, uh, in Edinburgh School of Communication. Um, so after that, um, I started to uh, work on this book based on my dissertation. Um, so I'm now teaching at uh, Michigan State University. Um, so that's briefly about me. Uh, so I'm interested in um, social media, um, collective memory. Um, so it's basically a critical approach to the understanding of social media um, especially uh, in contemporary China. So you just mentioned then a couple of your interests. Is that what drew you to the subject matter and what ultimately led you to writing this book? Yes, yes, absolutely. So um, this book came directly out of my dissertation project. So I want to study how people remember public events in the age of social media when everything was changing so quickly and it seems that everybody uh, can become a journalist reporting what is happening around them. So that is the thing that drove me to uh, this research. Um, so I, I'm a, I myself, I'm a heavy social media user, especially Weibo. So that is a Chinese microblogging platform, um, as you know. Um, so uh, after um, about a year... Uh, um, just looking around on this platform, and I find it's really fascinating. Um, so especially when, uh, especially the year of 2011, it was a very eventful year, both in China and in other parts of the world. So, you know, at that time, um, Japan had an earthquake uh, and followed by the tsunami and the failure of the nuclear power plant. So unlike... Uh, before, I first got this news from Weibo, um, the Chinese uh, sources. So uh, so when I was just randomly browsing, um, but at, so it was early in the morning in the U.S., but, um, well, but still I got a lot of information uh, coming, coming in, just like flood. Um, so there were lots of reports from Chinese media, uh, which I can read, and, all, and also a lot of first-hand information coming from Japan, from the Chinese, and from the correspondences. So what I found interesting at that time was that together with the developing news, the latest, while the latest information was still flooding in, people began to talk about similar past events such as the 2008 earthquake in China and also the Indian Ocean tsunami um, or like the 
the nuclear power uh, plant accidents like the Chernobyl, even the atomic bomb in Hiroshima. So people were making comparisons of these similar incidents, past and present. While on Weibo, they were also posting videos, images, and words to remember the current event. The current event. So this is how I began my project. So there is the one general interest, but there's also one particular、uh, event that drove me to that project. Um, so even though I was quite new at that time to the platform,、uh, I was still trying to yeah, because I I was still trying to figure out、uh, some of its features.、Uh, but following this triple disaster in Japan, gave me an opportunity to think about how I might be able to build up a connection between social media,、um, the transformation of journalism, and also the practices of collective remembering. So, in your personal experience, this time that you just described in two thousand eleven, was that sort of the very first time that you became aware of this parallel time when people were both remembering similar events and also grieving for what was happening and keeping up to date with current events? Uh, yes, yes, exactly. Because,、um, because、uh, I, you know, at that time I was still、uh, quite new to that platform, so I was stealing. I was still figuring out、um, how to use certain features of that.、Um, so, well, conventionally we would think that so social media platforms like that、uh, would be a convenient. Platform for people to report what they see and hear、um, well, around them immediately. So it's not so much about using those platforms as a tool for creating memories or、uh, collective remembering practices. So that was the first time I kind of realized this、um, parallel that's going on、uh, on the same platform. You've used the phrase "collective remembering" a couple of times. Can you just give us, for those who may not know, just a definition of what you mean by that phrase, "collective remembering"? Yes. So,、um, well,、uh, initially, I、uh, intended to use the term "collective memory" because that that is、uh, what most、uh, academic studies will use to describe this social. Remembering of the past,、um, but I want to use remembering to specifically highlight uh, these uh, the nature of it being a process. A process, so it's it's always ongoing. So the memory making it's always ongoing. It's not so what we remember is not something that's out there,、um, but it's always in the making. So especially、uh, for the contemporary.、Uh, Events or issues,、um, everything is changing, and so the memory could also change、um, just in the next、uh, few seconds. So this is why I prefer to describe it as a process. You did have a section in your book that sort of feeds into what you were just describing there quite well, and it's titled "How Remembering Leads to Forgetting." So the way you're just describing it as A process. How do you sort of feel it goes with with the nature of social media? Just this constant onslaught of information. So while people are remembering because of the pace of it, do some events just fall off the radar?、Mm-hmm. Yes.、Yeah, so definitely.、Um, so I. So that section was、uh, was not in my dissertation. So I added it、um, when I was writing this, this book. So I feel that、um, so the nature of social media is、uh, um, is pretty much、uh, welcoming these ongoing, these instantaneous、uh, feedback、um, and updates. It's not so much about uh, preserving, uh, and you know,、uh, in these days,、uh, something happens like a hot topic out there. Can disappear just in a few days, maybe a week, and then nobody will talk about that. 
Um, but I was, uh, but in this book, I, I sort of I uh, described how people still were still trying to uh, grasp something out of that. Um, but I mean, uh, these uh, features of social media um, do lead to some kind of uh, forgetting. So even even though in the practices of remembering, so for example, uh, so we talk about how people instantaneously start to commemorate those who like lost their lives uh, in a disaster. Um, so, but as the days uh, went on, so these commemoration became a sort of uh, formulaic practices. So you can just post uh, like a candle emoji um, or like saying a few words like rest in peace or put some flowers and stuff like that. And uh, and then your posts uh, get reposted by other people. And then um, just after a few days, I mean, we don't we don't seem to care about the core of the event. So there's all kinds of these commemorative messages uh, out there uh, on this platform. Um, so uh, I think especially uh, in more recent events, um, so I see that people learned these kind of practices. So and it's getting more and more formulaic. So as if you post some uh, candles or flowers or RIP, and then you're free from other obligations to remember these people. So in that sense, uh, I mean, so these remembering could actually lead to forgetting. So that's the downside um, of the collective remembering practices on social media. That is uh, um, that, 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 I, that, that I added to my uh, study. So it, it's interesting what you brought up then, how you said it's formulaic, because I think that's indicative of many social media platforms, not just Weibo. Right. Mm-hmm. Do you think that with these new technologies and just the immediacy of it now, is having people basically post something and then forget it, basically just a, a side effect that that we just have to wear, bas- basically that it's better if people even just have a cursory knowledge and forget rather than not know about an event at all? Um, can you repeat the question again? Yeah, sure. So with people, you know how you're saying it's very formulaic, they just say rest in peace or yeah. a candle mm-hmm. and that and that can lead to people forgetting about victims quite quickly. Do you think that that's a trade-off? Is it better for people to have a very formulaic sort of commemoration and move on than not know about an event at all? Oh, yes, of course. I mean, um, well, at least uh, it shows that, well, at certain period, even it's a very short period of time, there is a group of people who care about these victims or care about the development of the event. So it's better than not knowing that because, well, at some point, I mean, uh, talking about certain event could become uh, taboo or could be banned by the higher authority. So even if there's a um, very... So even if people remember these uh, things uh, at in a very um, short period of time, I think it's still worth doing it. Um, so even if, um, well, these kind of formulaic memory would lead to a quick forgetting, I still think it's better to have that than having nothing to remember. You did just mention then about how subjects can be taboo and the higher-ups can get involved. Has mm-hmm. Weibo fallen victim to censorship much? Uh, yes, it's pretty much. Um, so especially in recent years. 
Um, so in the beginning, um, I, I think the uh, high authorities, the officials didn't quite catch up with these new phenomenon. So um, it was um, not very easy for them to get in. So when something exploded on Weibo um, and it was uh, spread to a larger public quickly. So the officials usually uh, reacted very slowly to this situation because they, they were not so used to that. Um, but uh, in recent years, I think, so based on my observation, I think they are getting more and more um, uh, accustomed to it. Um, and so this uh, censorship is getting more uh, sophisticated. So it's not just about uh, blocking some user's uh, account uh, or deleting some posts. So these are very basic practices of censorship. Um, but now I think uh, what is remarkable is that the official uh, institutions, uh, including uh, some official media, they are actively participating in the conversation uh, with the ordinary people on Weibo. So in that way, they can voice their opinions and they can shape the public opinion uh, in a way they want. So it's uh, much more sophisticated than just uh, closing down some people's account. I'll just read a quote that you wrote. You said, quote, Journalism benefits from the digital age and global network society in which different groups of individuals collaborate to tell a story. The culture of journalism becomes more collaborative, responsive, and interactive, privileging the role of the individuals, end quote. That just goes to the point that you were talking about then about how media outlets are interacting with individuals and mm-hmm. how the authorities are sort of trying to catch up to that. Mm-hmm. What do you see the role of citizen journalism moving forward? Because it's a phrase that we hear quite a lot in relation to media studies. Uh, yes, yes, of course. Um, so I did mention uh, very similar uh, activities of citizen journalism. So even though uh, we don't use this uh, term quite often in, in the Chinese context, um, because uh, in some way uh, this uh, this word citizen suggests something that the authority doesn't like. Um, so usually people would just use like uh, a very Chinese term like self-medium. So it's, it's basically very similar. But um, so, and, and this self-medium uh, is much uh, wider. Uh, so the meaning is much wider than citizen journalism. Yeah, but I did talk about uh, the individual-based journalism practices, especially in Chapter 3, which I focus on these multiple forces of control and the resistance work together to shape the meaning of public events. Um, So, so for example, so especially uh, during the earlier years of Weibo, uh, it was quite um, an optimistic and a celebratory uh, atmosphere on the platform and people were celebrating uh, the potential of Weibo in uh, empowering the individuals so that everybody can become a journalist. So as long as you have a phone in hand, you can basically report whatever you see. So for example, uh, like I mentioned uh, in Chapter 2, this uh, high-speed train uh, crash so that was eventually that was actually um, first reported by people who just walked by uh, and they saw well they saw the train slowing down uh, and then was eventually uh, there, there was the crash. Um, so it was considered as the victory of the individual of the individual authorities. Um, so. Um, I mean, as a journalist from the mainstream media, at that time, uh, basically, uh, you didn't get the exclusive story because these things are already uh, on the social media. So you have to, um, well, uh, sometimes contact those 
individuals who were on site uh, to get more information so that you can write your report. Um, but at the same time, um, I think um, Weibo is also a quite hierarchical place. These ordinary individuals, they need, they also, and even more, need the uh, the authority of the journalists to help them to spread these words out. Um, so if you are like, a, so just like me, for example, if I have like a, a few hundreds of followers, so my voice couldn't get that far. But if I, well, at mention some famous journalists or media uh, or even celebrity, so this could be a big deal. Um, so um, in this way, I think there's a mutual uh, beneficial relationship between the individuals and the, uh, I mean, these uh, traditional or mainstream uh, journalists. So in some way, uh, they are working together to bring things up uh, rather than competing with each other to get the story out. A lot of the time when people talk about the state of the media these days, they sort of look to citizen journalism and bemoan the decline of journalism. Mm -hmm. But the way you just described it then, you sounded a lot more optimistic saying that citizen journalism is in a way giving power back to the individual. And if they're at mentioning people and if they happen to be at the site of an event, it's more of a reciprocal relationship as opposed to fighting. Would that be accurate? Yes, well, at least this is uh, my observation during that time uh, when Weibo was uh, still in its early or what I call the golden age. Now, you mentioned the train accident before then. That was the 723 accident, yes? Yes. Can you go into just a little bit more depth about that? Because I found that one of the the most fascinating parts of the book, the way you sort of pick apart how that unfolded. So can you just go into a little bit more depth about that? Yeah, so you want me to describe that uh, accident uh, in greater details? Yes, uh, yes. Or yes. yes, so so that accident was very remarkable in the history of Weibo because that was regarded as the very first major uh, disaster uh, in the age of Weibo. Um, so that accident happened in 2011. Uh, so it was in July um, 23rd. So that's why uh, we call it 723 accident sometimes. So the accident uh, was between two high-speed trains um, and it killed uh, 40 people and with uh, about 200 injuries, so that's a, a very big number. Uh, so what is very special about the accident, um, I also mentioned in the book, is that from the very beginning, even before the crash of the two trains happened, it was recorded. So people have already posted the pictures to Weibo. It was a stormy night, uh, and uh, some people captured uh a running train slowing down, and then just a few minutes later, it was hit by another train coming. So the very first image that was captured by uh, people that that was the first very first image about this accident that people captured just with their phones. Um, so soon, um, the first post calling for rescue was posted to Weibo as the uh, as the crash uh, happened. So in that sense, every detail of the accident has been recorded. Um, so at these beginning years of Weibo, people were very much concerned and also they would like to, um, I mean, they would like to use these new tools to try to, I think that there's a way that people were trying to kind of uh, write their own history into that. Um, so um, 
uh, and um, so I mean, what is also, what also makes people so angry about uh, after this accident is that uh, so the next day uh, when the news were full of this accident and the following up of everything, so people found that the damaged train cars were in, immediately buried without any efforts of preserving the evidence for further investigation, or even there were, well, I mean, there may be still passengers alive waiting for rescue there. So uh, people began to question, so why the rush? Um, so what were the officials, like the ministry of, uh, that is the ministry of the railways, so why were the officials trying, what were the officials trying to hide from the public? Um, so people were very angry about this and they started to pose their questions, concerns, and the criticism. And later at that night, uh, at the press conference, uh, well, the spokesperson of the Ministry of Railways said something very inappropriate at that time. Um, so that also uh, triggered another wave of anger. Um, so people were criticizing the officials for not re uh, respecting uh, the lives of individuals. Uh, they were not doing what they should be doing. And also they were questioning um, so why the Chinese government is trying uh, to promote its high-speed rail technology um, to the rest of the world, even though this uh, the safety issue is, is still um, kind of like unresolved. Uh, so at the, the evidence would be that, that crash. So that was suspected to, um, well, due to the failure of the communication system. Um, yeah, so there are a lot of questions uh, emerging from this single event. So, um, and again, just like the previous, uh, uh, the, the earthquake in Japan, um, people started to compare these events, uh, with the previous ones. And they were, and, and at the same time, they were, uh, immediately commemorating the victims, um, especially some individuals who had very touching stories being shared on Weibo. So, yeah. Um, so this single event, um, there's a lot of issues uh, about uh, information transparency, about the government responsibility, um, and things like that were going on. So that is why it became so... Um, so this, this uh, event becomes so important to look at. And this also, I think, shapes the ways in which how people understand later events and how they remember later events. Because this was one of the first times, well, they, you said they first major event in Weibo's history and people mm -hmm. were asking questions of the authorities, do you think that that has forced officials and higher-ups to be more transparent in their communications because they know that they can't get away with it? Um, well, to some extent, yes. Uh, so they have to, um, or I mean, to some extent, they, I think um, they have to provide the information. Uh, so... Uh, well, for, for, for example, I mean, uh, at the very beginning of the uh, accident, there were a lot of information, but not all of them are very accurate. Uh, so it was the responsibility for the uh, government to provide um, credible information to the public. So, I mean, they were trying to do that. But I think for this particular event, uh, because it was uh, very sensitive. Um, it involved these uh, high-ranking um, institutions, the Ministry uh, of the Railways. Um, so it's very, 
it's very difficult to uh, for 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 these uh, authorities to shift to to make a shift like a hundred eighty degree. Um, so what I see, so after this particular accident, was actually more um, censorship of these related topics. So you can you can talk about. Uh, some aspects of the accident, like the victims, the stories of the victims, or you can you can still commemorate them. Um, but all these questions regarding uh, these high speed railway technologies, or uh, I mean the the possible corruption uh, in the Ministry of Railway. So these are the questions that are later banned. Um, but for some other incidents, I think um, we, we, we did see uh, at some point uh, there were certain kind of transparency between the, um, the governmental officials and the public, but it's still quite limited uh, in some way. Um, well, but I mean, uh, because of the existence of Weibo, uh, or similar social media platforms. I think now uh, the official authorities, so they realize that it's uh, impossible to hide everything. So even even though they want to censor a certain aspect of these uh, of a certain uh, events, so they have to at least uh, be transparent uh, at some point or to a certain extent. With that accident as well, you said that, that a part of it was that they were selling this technology to other countries. Mm-hmm. How has the implementation of Weibo affected how both how China interacts with the with the world and possibly also how the world has viewed China? Has there been any influence in that space? Um, yes, I, I do. I don't think so. Um, so. Um, in chapter six, so uh, there's a chapter called Global and Local. So uh, it's mainly about this global scape of uh, journalism and memory making on Weibo. So that could, uh, uh, so that also addresses the issue of how uh, Weibo facilitate uh, the communication uh, beyond China. So uh, I talk about. Uh, well, the group of uh, overseas Chinese communities, so they were now uh, able to share uh, what is happening out there uh, in their communities back to China uh, more uh, frequently and, um, well, instantaneously. Um, And um, there's also more and more sort of comparisons made between China and the, well, the, the other countries. So, for example, like, um, well, um, just like the previous accident, uh, the, tr- the, the, the high-speed train crash, so people start to talk about how Japan uh, handled similar accidents uh, very carefully and successfully, um, so not like this one, um, and they started to talk about how after the 9-11, uh, the U.S. government uh, and the public spent many years to kind of investigate um, and also try to remember ev- everyone who died in that tragedy. Um, so there's always a comparison going on. Um, and more recently, However, I feel like um, there is a growing trend of nationalism uh, beyond uh, the Chinese state. So, for example, like whenever there is an accident or disaster happened overseas, uh, like a few years ago, there was an uh, was an earthquake in New Zealand, uh, and so people start to talk about how the Chinese government react, reacted so quickly and they um, dispatched a, a 
flies to uh, rescue the Chinese people, the Chinese citizens, um, and things like that. So that became evidence of a powerful, uh, strong motherland that is able to um, care and save its uh, citizens when in difficulty. Um, and also in terms of this international uh, flow of news, so I do see there's a lot of uh, um, like foreign media organizations um, and also even like uh, celebrities. They were uh, having Weibo accounts. So, well, of course, it's translated into Chinese. I think there's a team for them to do that. But, I mean, it becomes a major way for them to communicate. So, like, a sports stars or, like, celebrities. So, it becomes a major way for them to communicate with their Chinese fans and things like that. I think that was, that was very interesting what you just said then about the New Zealand earthquake and how they were dispatched to help the Chinese citizens. I, I wasn't aware of that. So in a, in a way, it's like what you just said then, Weibo is making China and the Chinese more globalized and more globally aware, but at the same time, they're more, yeah. con- they're more connected to their own citizens in a way. Mm-hmm. So another, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, did you have anything else to add? Um, yeah, I was. I, I just want to comment that. So this is a, a very nice tension that that's been going on. So it's a more globalized uh, at a, but at the same time, uh, it's a kind of uh, an apparatus of a growing nationalism. So yeah. In in the book yeah. as well, you discuss the idea of cosmopolitan Chinese, is that similar to what we were just discussing? Um, yeah, in, in some way it is. Um, yeah, but that, that but, but I use that term to address um, another aspect of this idea of global Chineseness. So, um, so I use um, uh, two specific examples uh, in my book. So, um, when I was doing my research, so there was the, the 10th anniversary of the 9-11. So at that time, um, a lot of Chinese people were uh, writing on Weibo and they were talking about how they reacted to the news when they first heard of that uh, 10 years before. So at that time, uh, when they first heard the news, a lot of people were actually applauding. So they were celebrating. Um, so in that sense, um, now 10 years after that, when people look back at what they did before, so there were a lot of uh, kind of uh, the feeling of shame um, on that. And they were saying that um, at that time, they were so uh, indoctrin- so kind of indoctrinated by uh, these anti-American um, sentiment, these anti-American um, kind of uh, propaganda. And so basically uh, what they want to do 10 years after that was to kind of reflect upon that. And uh, they were arguing that uh, we shouldn't look at this um, kind of tragedy uh in this kind of narrow-minded way, uh, we should be um, embracing these uh, shared uh, emotion and and this shared. Um, so we should have the empathy uh, over the suffering people, even though, uh, well, I mean, ideologically, uh, you don't agree with them or you're from different uh, nations and they are in conflict or something. Um, so, um, and, and also another example was more recent. Uh, so that was in 2012. Um, so there were, um, so there was a major uh, territorial dispute between China and Japan. 
and uh, and also because of the history. Um, so there was a long, uh, long time hostility uh, toward the Japanese for many Chinese people. Um, so during that territorial dispute, so there were a lot of uh, protests on the street. And also people were doing a lot of uh, violent things like vandalizing the Japanese-owned uh, shops or smashing the Japanese brand cars, so doing that kind of thing. Um, so these behavior were highly criticized on Weibo. So those people who criticized these, they cited the past event like the Cultural Revolution that happened uh, in the 60s and 70s. At that time, it was... Uh, so, so they understood this kind of violence as irrational, and, uh, and they argue that as Chinese citizens, uh, we shouldn't be allowing these kind of things to happen because that is not only the shame of the nation, but it also shows that the Chinese people were still very uh, um, xenophobic and uh, sometimes irrational just because of this historical hostility. Um, so they were arguing that so uh, we should be um, rational, we should respect uh, the, I mean, the, uh, the private property of other people. So we should be um, really to embrace the idea uh, that this narrow-minded, uh, militant nationalism is not a good thing. Um, so uh, in, 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 in this sense, I think uh, at least in the first few years of Weibo, it was cultivating this idea of thinking beyond the national boundary and beyond these uh, nationalistic sentiments. It's, it's, it's quite amazing with those two examples that you just gave, particularly with 9-11 and just how quickly opinion has changed. I mean, a, a decade isn't very long. So to go from celebrating it to when it first happened to 10 years ago saying, well, hang on a minute, maybe it wasn't a great thing. It's just it's phenomenal how much the opinion shifted in a relatively short amount of time. Yeah, and uh, I think there there was a uh, kind of shift of opinion, largely due to the early participants uh, of Weibo. So basically, in the beginning, uh, Weibo was uh, kind of marketed as a uh, media platform. So their uh, operators or their management team. Uh, intentionally in, in, invited a lot of uh, journalists um, and also some famous uh, scholars and uh, well, those people in the uh, uh, intellectual communities uh, to be part of this community, to, to be part of Weibo. So I think uh, a lot of these people at that point, uh, so they were... Um, what I call the most liberal-leaning group um, of of the Chinese uh, of the Chinese people. Um, so basically, uh, most of these people uh, were arguing that um, so we should so as a Chinese uh, we should be catching up with the Western world. So especially learning from their uh, political system uh, to learn from um, so their their level of uh, civilization and things like that. Um, so this kind of mentality, um, well, it's not something new. Uh, it's been there for about for like a century. So ever since China first encountered the major uh, Western powers, um, so. It's not something that just happened when Weibo emerged. It, it was always there, but it was Weibo that actually amplified their public influence. Um, so I think this is why we have seen this major shift of this opinion. Um, well, but uh, that was the earlier age of Weibo. Um, 
so in recent years, a lot of these people, they either um, or like um, quitted Weibo or some of them, their accounts got blocked because because of their uh, critical opinions about certain issues uh, or just because of they are being so outspoken. Uh, yeah, so there's also a changing trend uh, on Weibo as well. A few times you've said that in the earlier days of Weibo and that you, you wrote this book during the golden age of Weibo, you just briefly touched on then that a few people have left because their accounts have been blocked mm-hmm. because of censorship. You also discussed the emergence of competitor WeChat. Uh-huh. How, how do you see Weibo moving forward? Do you think it will continue to decline or will gain influence or are other competitors going to basically outmaneuver it? Well, um, so uh, WeChat um it actually emerged at about the same time as Weibo's golden age. Uh, so that was around 2011. Um, but, uh, well, I mean, in recent few years, it became a very popular uh, app. Um, and I think its active user is much more than uh, that of Weibo uh, now. Um, so, but I mean, these two things, these two platforms are very different. Um, so Weibo, as I mentioned, is uh, public. So it means that uh, means that you can see whoever posted there. You can see what what is going on. Basically, it's very much transparent. So as long as those posts uh, were not deleted, so you can basically uh, see other people's comments and you can see what's going on. Um, but uh, we um, and and also a lot of these followers on Weibo. So my followers, for example, are not the people who I know uh, in my life. Um, so it's basically a connection between oh, strangers. So although you would have uh, connections with uh, like your coworkers or uh, friends. But the, but a lot of these connections are strangers. Uh, the WeChat is a very different system, so it's pretty closed. So I use the different I use the term uh, public square and a uh, private salon to show the difference, which is also what uh, the Weibo operation team uh, uh, was actually making that distinction. So. Um, as a private salon, you basically hear um, what your friends uh, were saying, what the people you invited were saying, uh, and also your conversation uh, in this small room will not go beyond that small circle. Um, and what is uh, interesting uh, is that um, the things you posted, so WeChat has also a function called moments where you can basically share your personal stories and life just like Facebook but what is interesting is that the thing you share on the on moment can only be viewed by your friends and if someone uh, left a comment there um, so for example if I if I check my friends uh, moment post I would only see the comments of our mutual friend. So I, I, I won't see um, other people's comments if that's not our mutual friend. Um, so it's a pretty close system. Uh, so in that way, um, in terms of public influence, uh, I think uh, well, WeChat still cannot uh, compare with Weibo. Um, well, it's so... Like in some more recent events, well, sometimes people start to talk about it on WeChat, um, but it was when, um, well, but when it was posted to Weibo, so that was the time it it gets uh, real public influence. So if this conversation uh, is kept on WeChat, 
um, well, these uh, sharing repos, and these are quite limited. And it's very hard for you to hear different opinions because you wouldn't see them unless you have a mutual friend with uh, another with another user. So basically what you would see would be most likely, would be more likely to be those who are similar to you. So in that sense, uh, you don't really get a, you don't really get a lot of uh, uh, diversity in terms of the opinion. Um, but WeChat uh, has its strengths uh, in many ways. It's now becoming uh, a tool where, uh, where you can do almost everything from calling a taxi, uh, ordering a meal, um, or paying your bill or something like that, which is uh, too complicated. And, uh, well, I mean, I've been away from China for many years, so it's really hard for me to catch up. Um, but I think, well, some people argue that Weibo is in its decline um, because of this competition. Um, and they were lamenting um, Weibo's decline due to this technology um, and also uh, the, due to the competition of these new platforms. Uh, but more importantly, uh, these heightening censorship of Weibo. Um, so that is why I spend, uh, well, some time in my book to describe some recent changes uh, that Weibo is making. Um, so that, so from basically a news medium to a different one. So for uh, from this uh, news medium that is more uh, susceptible to um, censorship to something that is more, um, something that is safer, uh, something that facilitates, for example, the exchange of information about uh, startups, about uh, uh, entrepreneurship, um, about uh, entertainment, uh, sports, things like that. So that would give uh, Weibo a different look uh, in the future. Eileen, it's been a fascinating and very insightful discussion. Eileen, thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you for having me.